Hello and welcome to Scripture Untangled, a podcast by the Canadian Bible Society. My name is Joanna LaFleur. I'm a friend of the Canadian Bible Society, and I'll be your guide for today's episode. Today, our guest is Anu George Kanjanathopal, who is the CEO of IJM Canada. That's International Justice Mission Canada. And she's going to be interviewed by seasoned journalist Lorna Duick about how she wrestles with injustice in the world in light of what scripture says and who God says he is through the Bible. So let me tell you a little bit more about her. During her time with IJM, Anu has worked extensively to impact the justice system by collaborating with state and local governments in East Asia and South Asia. Anu has initiated and led IJM's first ever partnership program and oversaw the training of more than 17,000 police officers, government officials, and NGOs on the rescue and rehabilitation of individuals trapped in slavery and bringing criminals to justice. As a result of Anu's leadership, 10,000 individuals have been rescued from forced labor slavery. She's an amazing communicator and she's a passionate voice for these issues of justice. So I think you're going to love this conversation between Lorna and Anu. You're listening to Scripture Untangled, a podcast by the Canadian Bible Society. We know that the Bible can feel overwhelming, confusing, or hard to believe. Scripture Untangled brings you interviews with culture leaders, leaders in ministry, and Bible thinkers to help you be inspired to dive into the Bible and understand it. Visit BibleSociety.ca for more resources. Welcome to a conversation with Anu George Kanjanathopal. Anu comes to International Justice Mission Canada from South Asia. She has overseen the training of more than 17,000 police, government officials, and NGOs for the rescue and rehabilitation of individuals trapped in slavery and to bring criminals to justice. As a result of Anu's leadership, over 10,000 individuals have been rescued from forced labor slavery. Anu holds a master's degree in business administration, a master's degree in organizational leadership. She has successfully completed her law degree, has worked in that area of law. She has been recognized as a Sauvé Scholar by the Canadian government and been awarded numerous awards, including a Prime Minister's Gold Medal. There are over 40.3 million people who are trafficked for all sorts of violent forms of modern-day slavery, and Anu is on the front lines of that. We are just delighted to have you with us, Anu. Uh, Anu lives with her husband and two twin daughters in the GTA. Wow, what a journey you've had, Anu. Welcome to the Canadian Bible Society. Oh, the joy is mine to join you, Lona. Thank you so much for having me. Well, let's begin with the very important realities our listeners should know about slavery. That is, sadly, alive and active in the globe today. What do we need to know about human slavery? It is uh, it is probably one of the most hidden crimes uh, that is impacting the world right now. You mentioned a statistic of 40.3 million people. That changed in the last couple of weeks because that is the growth at which this heinous crime has been impacted in the face of COVID, climate change, and conflict. So 50 million people 
are trapped in slavery right now. It is the worst that it has ever been in the history of mankind. And roughly a quarter of the victims of modern slavery are children. Some 22 million of them are in forced marriages. And two out of these five people are children. I mean, we need to allow that to sink in. Uh, 27.6 million people are trapped in forced labor. 17.3 million are in exploitation in the private economy and several millions in commercial sexual exploitation. Uh, the pandemic, like I mentioned earlier, has exasperated the crime and add to that climate change and now the conflict that is going on uh, in Ukraine. And migrant workers are particularly vulnerable to forced labor. When you think of human trafficking, immediately a thought goes to, is it trafficking for sex? Not really. It's not just the only space. The perpetrators are so creative that when they find people who are in vulnerable situations, they're easy to exploit. So there is no, it's almost like you own something. And when you own something, you can do whatever you want to with it. You can destroy it. You can make it dance to your tunes. And that's exactly what perpetrators have been doing um, to these 15 million people, whether it is and human trafficking as a use of violence to recruit or harbor people in order to exploit them for forced prostitution or labor or criminality or marriage or organ removal. And there are n number of ways that a person can be exploited. Some of the cases that I've had to deal with included um, those who have born into slavery, a descent-based slavery. It's one of the oldest forms of slavery where, again, the slave status has been passed on the maternal line. Um, so it, it is incredible. But, but I think what we, as much as this is the biggest number in the history of mankind, it is also the unique, um, uh, we are also in the unique position to address this crime now more than ever. There is hope. We we want to get into that hope. Absolutely. I, I think we need to put the crime, really, it's so prevalent, like not mm -hmm. far from where we are recording this podcast in the GTA, we have court cases underway for human trafficking in the sex trade and slavery and farm labor. Canadian-based slavery, what do we yeah. need to know about that? Well, simple thing is human trafficking is a $150 billion industry. So this is not an industry which has got borders. Oftentimes people are like, oh, uh, this problem is not happening so much back home. Well, define home for me. The the when a crime like this again, as a Christian, the answer is: How do we expand on the term home? The air that we breathe, the land that we walk on, the sun that we share. I mean, these are all an extension of His kingdom. So that is a Christian expression of, um, you know, what home is. But also for human trafficking as a problem, it is a borderless crime. The beneficiaries of slavery are very much in Canada. One of the case type that we take leadership in addressing um, happens out of Philippines. It is the online sexual exploitation of children. Children as young as two months have been rescued from that. And we should say IJM has a very tragic but good educational video online about the Philippines situation. Absolutely. Excellent for education. So, okay, you 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 mentioned this 
incredible global reach of it. Yeah. Let's just move into this beautiful space of the Canadian Bible Society, the yeah. Bible. What does the Bible say about the tragedy of slavery in 2022? My, I mean, there have been several people who have tried to reference the Bible in different directions. So I categorize my, I, I think there are t- three types of Christians who reference the Bible when it comes to slavery. One would be those who use the Bible as an excuse, you know, referencing the Old Testament and say, oh, this has been a practice that has been referenced in the Old Testament. Therefore, there is nothing we can do about it. And then there is a set of Christians who, again, refer back to the Bible and say, um, well, our God is a God of justice and absolutely cares about um, injustice and absolutely nothing angers him more than seeing injustice. And there are enough and more references in the Bible that calls out to protecting the widows, protecting the orphans and protecting those who are oppressed and the underdogs, really. And then there is a third type of Christian who reads the Bible and does not action on it. So my challenge to Christians oftentimes is how do you use the Bible to seek God's heart for justice? Because that is not in question. The fact that our father is a, is a God of justice is not in question. That the foundation of how he invites his children into his kingdom is based on love. So there is no space for inequality there. I mean, one child cannot be mistreated by another. Uh, that is how I look at uh, um what the Bible talks to us or tells us about a Christian's role in responding to something as oppressive as slavery. You know, um, there has been those that uh, that have manipulated the pages of the Bible. Oh, I think about the Bible Museum. It actually has the slavery Bibles in it, which were yeah. altered by slave owners of those days. What scripture passage do you often return to in the Bible? to say, uh-uh, this is, this is the God we serve. You know, there is, I mean, obviously there is Isaiah 111, which is the foundation of what we are working on. But for me personally, um, and, and this is, it is amazing. Psalms 23, time and again, it is very much part of our daily routine too. But Psalms 23 reminds me of what God wants for my life, but also for those who are yet to taste and experience him. I reflect on this verse so many times. I oftentimes think of families who are trapped in slavery, who forget even praying or, you know, having the opportunity to read the Bible, even to sleep, do not have the perpetrator's permission. And I keep wondering, what would the life of that slave be in reference or in context to Psalms 23? Because God has not ignored that slave, that God sees that family, which is waiting for that day to be able to experience freedom and taste God in that freedom. When you're unable to access the, when you don't have agency over your own life, imagine what it would mean to be able to taste the sweetness when you are able to exit that oppressive condition in uh, a brick kiln or a rock quarry or, or, or a brothel. That is, that is how I experience it. 
I never have thought of applying Psalm 23 to the path of the person needing to be rescued from slavery. What a beautiful, beautiful prayer and, and hope. The Bible is, is deep and long in your history. Your father is a, a well-known playwright, uh, in material of the Bible. Just tell us a little bit about how did the Bible become part of your life, Anu? Absolutely. It's a long story, but I'll try and keep it concise. My, uh, I think the generations, you, South Asians d- did not automatically become Christians. Our journey has been pretty recent. And uh, a lot of us have had different stories. From my father's side of the story was this. He was part of uh, um, one of the palaces. I'm not getting into the specifics of it, but the royal family or the warrior family. So there was so part of the royal blood, so to say. And the British empire uh, was ruling that part of South Asia and uh, his great grand uncle was murdered and it was unjust and there was no reason uh, that this could not be challenged. So my great, great grandfather wanted to challenge this, but that meant going to a court which would only listen to those who can speak in English. So he really struggled. He wanted to seek justice, but he did not know the language. And at that point, a missionary had arrived in that part of um, South Asia and said, okay, so your challenge is to understand English. Well, take this Bible, which is in your mother tongue, and also take this Bible, which is in English. So, you know, in less than a year, you'll be able to learn the language and learn he did. Learned it so well that his uh, vengeful heart gave way to uh, understanding God's love. And he decided to walk away from the riches and the positions that the staying back in the palace would offer and decided to be a missionary with his children. So they had their own uh, stories of persecution, but the families that followed are ended up with my father, the eighth born. So he was uh, at the peak of his career. He was in the space of making films and, you know, all the glamorous world that there was to writing, an incredible writer and all of that. Soon after I was born, he kind of stopped to think of what was it that God was trying to do with his life. At the very peak of his career, he abandoned everything and chose to write for God. And uh, he started working with a Korean missionary at that point. It was an organization based out of South Asia. And uh, he stayed back at home to be there for the children. So he made this a part-time affair while my mom went to work full-time. And he has written about 8,000 plays on the Bible. And um, before I had, I had a small episode with Vilas, but before that I used to partner with him because this was so enjoyable and this got me closer to understanding um, the word a lot more deeper. And you you um, took the love of his plays. You became an, act, an actor, an actress that brought the passion you have for justice first as, were you actually a teenager when you started yes. to do street plays? Yes. So that was your start in yes. applying yes. biblical truths to, to justice issues. Tell us about that. Yeah. So uh, I had a very special kind of an upbringing. I call it special because um, my parents were, chose or wanted to have a daughter when 
everybody around was actively pursuing infanticide, female infanticide. So uh, there was a bit of, you know, I think feminism, if I may call it, in how they uh, wanted to have a daughter in the first place when that was not what majority of the families in that part of the world wanted. And even when they were bringing me up, all I saw within my household was a lot of Christian love, which was not what I experienced outside of my home. I would see a lot of domestic violence. Um, husbands would be drunk and they would beat up their wives. And it was such a common sight. And nobody would even question because the it was it was part of the culture. It was the norm. If anybody asked, it'll be like, well, it's my family. How dare you intervene? So as a child, I thought that my father was stronger than Mike Tyson. I still do. I think it's a daughter thing. But I would run up to my father's you know, office and say, that man is beating up his wife, go and beat him up. You know, I thought that was justice as a four-year-old or a five-year-old. So when I got to my teens, I realized that I needed to do something about it. At that point, I thought it was lack of education, which was a problem. And I decided to embark on this street theater activism, which I would do in my summer vacation, but then that needed money. <laughs> so I started a business which would give me the money in event management so that I could pursue this wherever I travel to um, during my summer vacations to do this activism, to bring people close to uh, being interested in uh, education and uh, not embracing violence. So the principles of what daddy used to tell me from the Bible made its way into those plays. But it was very much a secular play because of the context in which I was performing it. Um, and that's how I started really seeking justice when I was 15. And along with that public voice, as yes. a 15 year old, you also began very, very aggressively on an education path. Yes. Why was, I mean, two master's degrees, a law degree. What, why was, what was driving all of that? Well, I was not really a, good student in school. I mean, uh, to be very honest, I was extremely bored in things that were discussed in my classroom. I would sleep. My teachers would call my parents and complain and saying she's not interested, primarily because I was training for marathons in the morning and I was exhausted. But I also quickly learned when um, I left, when I finished grade 12, that it was also because I was not interested in what was being taught. I was fascinated by law. And the world of opportunities that opened for somebody like me who was interested in seeing what it is that the law can do in uh, serving people. Uh, I knew that this was a huge weapon, if I if we can call it, against the atrocities that I was seeing um, against mankind, at least in my space where I was living. And when I got to law school, I was so fascinated by everything that I was reading. And then uh, I think my journey began to learn and discover more and be better at what I was. I knew that I was excellent with uh, being an entrepreneur, like making money came naturally to me. And then I was like, oh, maybe I'll, I'll, I'll figure out what business management can teach. Um, so I primarily did that on the side while I was continuing to work and teach. I didn't do any of my master's uh, independently. I pursued my master's while I was either teaching or uh, working um, because I I did not like to waste my time. I like to pack my days in a way I felt that I have spent every single minute doing something that would be fruitful or that would contribute to something bigger. Um, but yeah. 
I hope you're enjoying the conversation between Anu and Lorna. I want to tell you about the Poverty and Justice Bible. The Bible is where God's voice for the poor and the oppressed shouts loud and clear. And this Bible highlights over 3,500 verses revealing what God has to say about poverty and injustice. An exclusive 32-page study guide section also has an amazing way of encouraging the reader to take action. It's perfect for the socially aware to get more involved in today's issues and take things further. You can check out the Poverty and Justice Bible and other resources at BiblesCanada.com. And the link will be down in the show notes. And into this enormous, high-powered path of fruitfulness, mm-hmm. a devastating tragedy happens. Yes. <laughs> and you are stopped. You are stopped in a very cruel, cruel way. Yeah. Tell yeah. us about becoming a victim of violence. Absolutely. I think that was a turning point of my life. So all, all through my childhood, teenage years, and even, you know, um, as early 20s, I was like, well, if I'm really educated, then I will be able to do all these amazing things. I had a list of things that I wanted to be. And then um, even when I was, I was at that point heading the University of Aberdeen, the South Asian campus, I was nearly 23. And at that age, to be able to, you know, head an entire you know, law school um, that I was able to bring to that part of uh, South Asia was unheard of. So here people around were like, oh, you know, a bit of a freak for lack of better words. Uh, and and doing really well in career, then also pursuing, you know, things that mattered to me, like seeking justice. So the first, um, first turning point was... Uh, um, personally, when I encountered violence when I was 23 and then being forced, um, for the sake of self-preservation, really to run away from one city to another without much with me. I had a bag of clothes and, uh, $20. So the experience of, um, staying on the railway benches, uh, for several nights before, I found a safe place to stay. The experience of not having anything that I had accomplished, my education or my experience to, you know, be a crutch for me at a time when I was living fearfully in a new city was extremely humbling. And at that point, I got another job, fancier role uh, and, 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 a, and a fancier opportunity. And then again, I was continuing to seek justice uh, with the in South Asia, you know, working among slum children. But the local mafia got wind of it. And obviously they weren't very pleased with what it is that I was seeking to do because that was going to impact their revenue. Um, So I was beaten up and this time by several men. Uh, And that basically ended up incapacitating me for almost an entire year. You were paralyzed. I think we should pause for a moment on the scope of those injuries yeah. from that beating. You were paralyzed. I was. How did you survive that? You were alone in a city? Well, the, the, there were several miracles. I mean, I'm skipping over several miracles that happened at that point. But basically, I was found lying um, in the bathroom of YWCA. 
And for six to seven hours, that's where I was. I couldn't move. Uh, they had to physically remove me and they got in touch with my employer, um, who had known me for just three to four months at that point. But she was an amazing woman who thought it was important to, uh, you know, ensure that I got back home. And then a friend from somewhere popped up and I was on a stretcher. They put me on a plane and sent me back home. Um, I think it was extremely humbling, Lorna. I mean, for lack of better words, here is someone who was a national marathon runner, somebody who had made her space in entrepreneurship, in leadership, in in pretty much anything you can be ambitious about and get to, and then suddenly being immobile and your face looking weird and saliva oozing out of your mouth and you having no control of over your body and not being able to communicate what it is that you need and completely being dependent on somebody, hopefully a woman, taking you to the bathroom. You know, it is so humbling. Um, and I think the only thing that I stuck onto at that point was my faith. Tell us about that. You, you're in the absolute apex of a crisis of limitation I, brought onto you by injustice of a horrific sort. What happens with your faith then? Well, to answer that, I need to back up my story a bit to the days where my father was telling me stories as I was a child. You know, he would make stories for me. He's an excellent storyteller. So when he was telling stories to his daughter, he would create these beautiful stories where I was always the hero. And in all of those stories, uh, there would be a turning point and he would ask, okay, so what would Dr. Anu do? Or what would Detective Anu do? Or what would Policewoman Anu do? You know, so different characters, but the hero is always Anu. And then he would intentionally put this turning point in those stories so that I would make the difficult but right choice of following Jesus. And I felt it that episode in my life was exactly like those stories because in my head, I was like, well, I'm going to rise like the Phoenix because this is that point where I turn to Jesus. And this is that point where I would surrender completely, completely to my God. And he's going to show up like every other time. So this is that absurd faith, right? I mean, something that comes from years of being told that my father is not going to let me down. Um, and, I think as much as I believed in those stories because it was passed on to me during the age of transductive reasoning, I there came a point where I would see my dad sit next to my bed and look at me. He aged tremendously, like tremendously in that year. And my mother, who would on the outside appear to be absolutely brave about what's going on, but I knew that she was broken. She quit her job. Everybody quit their jobs. My brothers quit their jobs. They came together to be with me, to tell me and remind me that I was going to be able to, to remind me of my past and tell me what it holds for my future and my present. But I started to feel that my father stopped believing in those stories that he was telling me um, because I could see him grieve. And if my father genuinely believed that Jesus was going to show up and a miracle was going to happen, then he shouldn't be grieving 
and I shouldn't be seeing him grieve. Um, so that Christmas, I decided that I had to walk. The doctors had given up, three hospitals had given up on me. So we went the Ayurveda route, which is the natural form of treatment. Um, and even the doctor there said, well, don't even attempt using your right side of the body to walk because you don't feel anything on your left and bones could crack and we couldn't heal and it could be irreparable. So don't think of anything, um, you know, just, just hope for a miracle. And they would continue doing these things and physiotherapy and whatnot. But Christmas time, I was like, well, I can, I can, you know, slightly shove my body to the right. I'm going to try and get out of bed myself. Get out of bed, I did. Practice for three hours, falling several times, but determined to stand when my family wakes up on Christmas morning to give them the best gift of their life. Um, and the journey of recovery was hard. It took time because I would still have triggers. Because the thing about violence is this. One, yes, it takes over your physical capabilities, but what it does to your mind and spirit is far more dangerous and uh, incapacitating than it can do to your body. Because getting control over your mind is really the hardest part. Was your faith helpful? Oh, it was only my faith which got me through that entire episode and continues to, you know, be my guiding light. If not for faith, honestly, I don't know. I don't know if, uh, oh, I, I, I even shudder to think about it, if I did not have faith. How many years ago was that? In 2009. And, and your Christmas determination miracle to be standing on Christmas Day for yeah. your family, 2009. Yeah. It's a big adventure you've been on since. It's, it's been, in, what's your, what are your spiritual disciplines like? What a journey you've had. Yeah, um, it is, I mean, I'm an Orthodox Christian, so we have always had a traditional kind of um, disciplines indoctrinated into our daily living. But ever since I joined IJM, I had the luxury of being, um, you know, being part of this everyday prayer with the entire team. So we have a half an hour stillness that's factored into our workday. Um, and we have a half an hour prayer time that we, you know, spend with the entire staff. But apart from that, I rely so much on, um, you know, the Pray As You Go app. And oh, I love that app. I yeah. love that app. And then Jesus Today um, and my, it's my go-to when I feel really low because I kind of feel like, I don't know what God is trying to tell me. And I'm not the kind of Christian who uh, can open the Bible and, you know, immediately God is speaking to me. It takes effort for me to understand what God is trying to tell me. Uh, sometimes it is me taking the step forward and trusting that God will show up. Um, and then my favorite Bible, I don't know if you've ever seen this edition, the Poverty and Justice Bible. Is, no, I haven't. Yeah, it's an incredible version, uh, which captures the essence of God's heart for justice. Um, and my prayer time is with my children, uh, ever since the babies have been born. Otherwise we had a family prayer time in the evening. Uh, but because of, uh, you know, the changing realities of being a working mom, 
the time before we go to sleep is when we come together and pray. The daily verse that I read uh, informs me what it is that I need to meditate on when I go to bed. I still nurse my babies to sleep. I hope our editor doesn't completely edit out the children coming home from care uh, during this interview because, you know, it's not often we get to interview a busy mother of twins, three and a half year old twins, on how you stay connected to the Bible. <laughs> With that, you're laughing. It's it, it, it's a it's a challenge, isn't it? Getting it is a challenge. A little bit of space to be holy with God. Yeah, but it's beautiful, Lorna, because uh, I the times that I for me it is also a spiritual practice to pass on the gift of knowing Jesus to my children. So diaper changing times or when I'm sitting with them just before going to bed when we are praying, and it's so heartwarming when my children repeat after the faith that is unquestionable. For instance, mm -hmm. if it's dark, um, I'm like, oh, it's dark in there. Do you want mama to come? Tamara would be like, don't worry, mama. Jesus is with me. Um, I'm not afraid. I'm not alone. And then when I hear her pray, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down on my bed and goes to sleep with me. I'm like, you're making your own prayer. <laughs> you're receiving the word the way you understand. It's so heartwarming for me to see how a three and a half year old, both of them for that matter, have completely soaked into the knowledge that their mama cannot step, wake up from bed or get through the day without Jesus. Therefore, that really must be the reality for me too. So that, that, fearlessness that they get from the faith that has been passed on is so encouraging for me and inspiring. You know, we don't, I don't often get a chance to interview people from the Syrian Orthodox Church because it's a small church in Canada. Yeah. What, what role does the Bible play in your church uh, fellowship? It is a very, the, so for an Orthodox church, the Bible is central to us as Christians, you know, and, and it's very widely used in worship or liturgy, maybe more than any other tradition. And the way we approach reading the Bible is five steps. One is preparing to receive God's holy words, whether even before stepping into the church, there is a prayer we say. So the same principle applies for before we read the Bible, we pray to prepare to receive his words. And then we read the passage to in its original context and try not to take it out of context when it comes to, especially when it comes to justice, right? You know, I get so agitated when people are like, oh, but this is what it says. I'm like, you're taking it out of context, my friend. Anyway, so the second thing is to read the passage in its original context. And the third thing is to understand the Bible with the church in mind. And the next step would be to search the scriptures for Christ the heart of the Bible and see if there is a personal message, a deeper meaning. And most importantly, very much true of our tradition is to inscribe the scripture within the heart, the memorization bit. And that's where I seem to have lost because of my paralysis. Everything that used to come naturally to me does not anymore, whether it's just my three degrees or, you know, knowing the Bible inside out, which makes it a lot more joyful for me to go back every single day and revisit and um, understand what God is trying to tell me in a different light. Yeah, so I'm, I've summed up the Orthodox tradition as much as I could. 
That's beautiful. And and how did your church manage during COVID? Those are longer services. Did you do oh. them all online? Yeah, it was all online. Our services are three to four hours. Like weddings, you would see the bride or the groom nodding off to sleep you know, because it's extremely long services. Uh, but it's also deeply meaningful services. Yes, your, your weekly service is three hours long. Your weekly yes. service. The is weekly service is three hours long. Um, and, and the Sunday school practice that uh, we expose our children to makes it a lot more meaningful um, to attend the full service, to understand the parts of the uh, entire um, um, service. You know, what does it mean to offer kurbana? What, to, so... It is, it is deeply rich when we enter our place of worship with the knowledge of the liturgy. Um, so that makes it meaningful. So it, it, it was fully online and I'm pretty happy to report that, uh, the church kept going strong. In fact, might have gotten stronger because of that experience. People who would find reasons not to show up to church earlier realized quickly that this is honestly all that we have in time of crisis. Um, and um, now we almost see full attendance when, you know, things are back to kind of normal. Well, it's beautiful to hear that incredible foundation that's laid for your very challenging work at International Justice Mission. We're, we're going to close in a moment. And I, I just want to say this before we ask our last question here. I'm amazed that IJM is still doing the practice of 30 minutes of silent prayer for all the staff. You sit at your computer and you have 30 minutes. Okay. And I want to challenge as a mother of young twins, do you ever fall asleep during that time? <laughs> so and you don't have to answer that. You don't have to answer that, but that's a beautiful practice. IJM question. Uh, well, I, I traveled with IJM many years ago and uh, I, I was just amazed at that practice. And I tried to bring it back home to my organizations and it, it takes a strong uh, ethos in the organization to maintain that daily 30 minutes of prayer all, silently, each staff member at their computer. But the need is so great what you guys do at an international yeah. justice mission. You, you have sadly seen the children the women, the men who are literally enslaved and in the most horrific of circumstances. Give us your counsel as we close here for people who want to care about the crime of human trafficking. How can we connect with it? Well, the easiest way to do that would be to partner with IJM. I mean, I, I say this because we tend to overcomplicate a simple solution. We have in the last 25 years of doing this work, found the solution to addressing this crime. There are several ways to, um, you know, walk away from answering God's heart for justice. But if there is one reason, or if there is one thing that draws you to saying yes to what God wants his people to do, to respond to those who are oppressed and waiting for us to show up and stand between the trafficker and themselves, then this is our opportunity too. And we have also seen that it is possible to end this problem by 2030. IJM is not an organization that wants to be, you know, the, the perpetually present throughout the history of mankind. No, we come 
with an end date. And that is 2030 and to protect half a billion people by 2030. It is possible. Amazing. And and we need to become monthly partners, right? Yeah, you can, you can, there are different ways. You can go to igm.ca, become a freedom partner, or your church can come together and say, we want to, you know, fund a rescue operation year, I mean, month after month. There are different ways. If you're part of a corporation, you can say, well, I want my um, organization to contribute to ending this fight. If you're within a government space, then you can partner with us to advocate, to change the law, which can significantly impact what's going on around the world. But I would say the first place would be to say yes to Jesus and saying yes to partnering with us. We can't do this alone. And honestly, in in all of the biggest movements of history, there are times that we or our children would ask ourselves or ask the question, what were we doing when this happened? Um, Whether it was uh, for the yeah, the Holocaust. I mean, I don't want my children to ask me tomorrow, mommy, what were you doing? Did you use us as an excuse not to show up to work? I want to say absolutely not. You were the reason that I showed up to work and you are the reason that I'll continue to fight this fight. Uh, there should be no excuse for us not to extend humanity to those who have no access to freedom. Well, Anu, George, Ken and Janathopal, thank you so much for reminding us the critical work of freeing people from bonded slavery, from the great chains of injustice. And thank you for reminding us that Psalm 23 is a beautiful psalm to take on that journey and how the Bible undergirds the strength that you share with International Justice Mission. Wonderful to have you here at the Canadian Bible Society today. Thank you. Thank you, Lana. What a, what a privilege. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Scripture Untangled, brought to you by the Canadian Bible Society. If you liked today's conversation, please subscribe to hear more. You can share this episode with a friend, post on social media, or rate this podcast so that more people can find it. The Canadian Bible Society is all about the Bible in the hands of a person where and when it is most needed, in the language closest to that person's heart, and in a format easy for them to use with help to understand it for themselves. Visit biblesociety.ca for more resources for you, your family, and your community.